am, uh, I am so grateful for our community of faith. And, uh, and I mean that whether or not um, you have been here for you know, 35 years or whether or not you've been here for 35 days. Uh, I'm just so grateful for, for just our community of faith and what God's doing among us right now. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to this message today. Um, you know, for the past 26 weeks, we have been um, walking through this very, very interesting, uh, I think one of the most fascinating, one of the most well-documented series of events in human, in human history. Um, in the Bible, we have this book. Uh, we have this book called Acts. And it records this explosive phenomenon that took place during the first century. It's a historical book. It's recording these events. Um, uh, if you have your Bible, you might want to open up to Acts chapter 26 and hold your finger there because we're going to get there in just a couple of minutes. And so if you're watching, you can do this. If you're in the room, I encourage you to do this. But uh, I realize that we're almost done with this series. And even though we've only got a couple of weeks left, I actually want to take a moment and I want to rewind and I want to look at the moment before this explosive phenomenon took place. Um, because I think when we see what was taking place before this moment, it's going to help us understand and see today's text with a little bit more clarity. Um, I, I just need to explain that before this took place, during the first century, sometime in, in the middle of, of human history, the, the religious um, scene was, was really interesting. Um, in fact, I think historians have sort of done us a disservice by labeling the first century world as pagan, especially the Roman Empire, or saying that people participate in paganism. Uh, I say that, maybe it's an accurate word from some sense, but I also say that because I think when we in our modern context think of paganism, um, we think of people that were religionless. We think of people that had no religion. Um, the reality is that... Um, when we say that, we lose a sense of the dimensions or we lose dimensions of what the gospel was delivering during this time period to a group of people who were actually practicing religion. The first century was in reality filled with religion. It was filled with all sorts of religious practice. Uh, in, in the Roman Empire alone, you had like a supermarket of religion that you could go into on any given day, and you had all sorts of options. You could choose, depending on what you were experiencing in your life, you could choose all sorts of things. If you were having one particular problem, you could walk into the supermarket of religion, and you could choose a God who would deal with whatever issue you were dealing with. And so there was this plethora of, of religions, and there were all sorts of gods. There were, there were family gods that you sort of drew from your own family heritage, your history. If you grew up in this house, well, that house house, they worshiped this God. And there were city gods. There were gods of a particular region where you lived. Um, you might have one principal God. This was very true. There might be one God who was kind of a God you recognize as greater than all the others, but that God sort of allowed you to participate in worshiping other gods if it benefited you. And so you could have some minor gods in some sense. And there were all sorts of rites and there were all sorts of rituals that you would participate in and you would direct those rites and rituals toward whatever God you needed something from in a particular moment. And so this God might have you do these things so that this God could do this thing for you. And so you would launch your ritual, you would send your rites, you would send these things to these gods in an effort to please them. That's, that's the, 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 the realm that people were living in. Um, the religious activity is everywhere. There are temples, there are shrines, there are idols. In fact, um, if you walked into your neighbor's house during the first century, just about anywhere in the Roman Empire, if you sat on somebody's sofa, if they had sofas, you would probably find somewhere near the sofa, someplace maybe up on the fireplace, somewhere near the TV, you would find a shrine to some sort of God. You would find some sort of idol. That's what the reality was. That's one of the significant characteristics of the first century Roman Empire. 
But there's another feature in the middle of this that I think we also have to recognize, and I think this is very important for us to understand why there was this explosive growth of the church during the first century. All of this religious activity was tremendously confusing and contradictory. So yes, there's all of these gods. Yes, there's all of these options. Yes, there's all of these strange rites of worship and rituals that people are doing, but it was so foggy. It was so unclear for what they were actually doing. In fact, uh, in, in my thinking, it sort of resembled people playing some sort of religious or philosophical game of pin the tail on the donkey. And for those of us that grew up in America, we know pin the tail on the donkey is this game we play at birthday parties where you get blindfolded and someone spins you around and you have a tail and somewhere there's a donkey and you go try to find the donkey, Right? That's sort of a picture for the Roman Empire religiously at this time. Everybody's sort of blindfolded. They don't really know what's, where they're going. They know that there's something that's out there, and they're not really sure about which direction to go, but they're going to make some sort of effort. That's a snapshot of the landscape of the Roman Empire. Lots of religion, but it's contradictory. It's confusing. People are just sort of grasping for whatever they could possibly grasp for. By the way, let me just also say this. It is very natural for human beings to try to create or at least try to long for a framework that will make sense of the world around them. So what these people are doing, what they're doing innately is a part of what it means to be human. Um, some of them are more cognitively aware of what they're doing, but then others just subconsciously, they're doing these things because somewhere we have to make sense of this natural world that we live in. We have to make sense of life's events. We have to make sense of the things that are taking place around us. And so it is, it is intuitive for us to do these things. All of us, all of us know that the donkey needs a tail, Right? There's this thing inside of us that says someplace we have to connect this tail to the donkey. We've got to figure this thing out. So go back to the first century. It's out of this landscape. It's out of this environment, out of this fog of religious pluralism and philosophical complexity that this new story begins to emerge. And, and it's, it's, it's not just a new story. It's an entirely radical new way of, of relating to God. It's a, it's a new way of understanding who God is. And the whole thing is built on this rabbi, this, this individual who was not like any other rabbi that anybody had ever known. And, and he, he's saying things that nobody's ever really heard anyone else say. And he's inviting people into something that is entirely new. It is not religion as usual. It's completely different. So, so instead of a God who's angry, who we're trying to please, he introduces us to a God who's loving, a God who extends compassion and care. Instead of a God who's distant, he reveals a God who is near, a God who's not only near, but he desires to be even closer to us. That's what he's revealing to us. Instead of, instead of striving to earn this God's favor, he reveals to us that we already have it, that he already loves us, that he already is for us. See, it's incredibly important that we understand that Jesus delivers two things that all of these religious endeavors during the first century never could. First of all, we get to know God through Jesus. None of these other efforts, nothing that anybody else was believing, whether it was philosophical or religious, none of it would ever tell anybody who God really was. They didn't get to know God through these things. They were grasping at straws. They were blind in the dark. They were pinning a tail on a donkey. And then, because of Jesus, by knowing God, knowing this God who, who you're now understanding, the created universe begins to make sense. 
now that I know this God, all of these things that are taking place around me, these events in the natural world, these events that are taking place relationally, these things that are happening even in my own character, even in my own personhood, all of these things, suddenly there's a framework and they come together and you start to realize, wait, there's something larger going on here. There's a story that's being written and I'm actually a part of this. So so that's taking place. And then finally, because you're knowing this God and because this God's helping you understand the world that you live in, finally, you now actually begin to encounter this God. We're talking about tangible, real life experiences with God, having moments when you can say to yourself without any question, I believe I've heard God speak to me. I believe I've experienced his presence. I believe he's led me. I believe he's pointed me in a direction. I believe he's given me truth. We experience God because of Jesus. He speaks and he moves and he leads and he heals and he helps and he brings peace and he delivers joy, all of these things. So then out of, out of knowing God, out of understanding our world, out of experiencing his tangible presence, people begin to live a certain way towards one another. They begin to live a certain way in community with each other. I mean, the Roman Empire was this incredibly culturally and ideologically diverse empire. It was incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse. And these Jesus followers emerge, these people who now know God and they understand the world they're living in, and they're having these tangible encounters with God. They begin to live towards each other and they begin to live towards others in their community in such a way that it's compelling. It begins to reveal something that's unifying and life-giving. So this thing emerges that in the book of Acts, this history book that's recording all of this, it starts to become called the way. The way of Jesus. Like everybody was moving in all of their different directions, but then there is this thing called the way. And the way describes this group of people who now know God and are experiencing him and they're living this different way in the world. And the people of the way, they begin to disperse throughout the empire and they're starting to spread this evangelion, this good news of Jesus. And naturally, in that environment, now when you see it, naturally, in this environment where everybody was just sort of blindly pursuing something they thought was there, naturally, when they come to hear about Jesus, it explodes. Naturally, more and more people are saying, absolutely, I want to be a part of this. City after city, culture after culture, people begin to know and they begin to experience God for the first time in their lives. It was just beautiful. It's attractive. It's, it was compelling. And so, so the book of Acts is detailing all of these events that are taking place. And by the way, just so you understand the time frame, the book of Acts starts in about A.D. 30, A.D. 31, and runs to A.D. 62. So in, in case you were just thinking, man, these guys were really busy in a short period of time, we're actually talking about a 30-year time span where the, the, the church was growing, it was ebbing and flowing, and these explosions were happening in all of these different places, and it was building momentum in the empire. Now, here's the catch with all of this. This history details the spread of the way of Jesus and the response to the way of Jesus in a culture that was remarkably similar to ours. I know I've mentioned this previously in the series, but there probably has never been a season, there's never been a time in human history that was more like that season than this one that we're currently in today. 
And in fact, um, I, I know a lot of us, we sort of carry a bias sometimes towards former um, civilizations, and we think they weren't as sophisticated or they weren't as intelligent as we are. That is simply not the case. Um, there are nuanced differences, yes. There are technological advancements, um, for better or for worse, yes. But humanity in this cultural moment today is facing life that is eerily similar to humanity in AD 61 or AD 62. We are still, let me just say this, we are still trying to pin the tail on the donkey today, probably more than ever. And things even, even more recently have become more confusing and more contradictory in many ways than even the days in the first century. So what we're reading about in Acts seems to be describing a world that's very much like ours. Now, I know one objection to this might be this. You look and you say, okay, wait a second. People aren't responding to the way of Jesus like they did back then. You're talking about an explosion of faith. All these people are believing. All of these cultures, all of these cities are being shaped. There's this explosive growth happening. You say, well, that, that's, that, that's what we're reading here. That's not happening today. But let me just tell you that the responses of people to the message of Jesus then are not very far off from the responses of people to the message of Jesus today. And let me just remind you of this. Not everybody then during the first century, jumped into following the way of Jesus. There were people who said, I don't want to be a part of this. There were people who said, I don't want to be associated with. There were people with people who said the implications of this are too, are too profound, and so they didn't join this. And we actually learn a lot when we look closely at the underlying reasons why people then would say no to the way of Jesus. Why didn't they join? That actually tells us something. I think it tells us something about ourselves. I think it tells us something about our culture. I think it tells us something that we need to lean into. Because what if we discovered that the chains that are holding people back then are the same chains that are holding people back today? What if the very same things that created opposition in their hearts, what if the very same things that created sort of a reluctance in their being to following the way of Jesus are the same things that cause that in our culture today? What if that's the case? That brings us to Acts chapter 26. Chapter 25, chapter 26, we're going to primarily focus on 26. Let me just explain what's going on here. Chapter 25, I'll sort of summarize the things preceding that and what happens in 25. The Apostle Paul has returned to Jerusalem. If you've been with us in the series, you already know this. Uh, Jerusalem is a place that at this point in history, sometime around AD 60, AD 61, the city of Jerusalem is very familiar with Christianity, and Paul is a very well-known character in the Roman Empire by the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, things don't go very well. That's to say the least, right? Uh, in fact, there is a riot. He's nearly beaten. He's imprisoned. Um, when we pick up the story from last week, we actually discovered last week that he was left in jail for two years awaiting some sort of trial. And during this time period, there's a new governor that gets appointed. There was a guy named Felix, who was the Roman governor, sort of the financial governor appointed over the region. And during this time period, there's a new governor, and his name is Festus, which if my name was Festus, I'd probably change my name, but that was his name. Uh, his name's Festus. In fact, you can read about him in a variety of histories outside of the Bible. I think that's really important that we're going to read about somebody today in the Bible that other histories talk about very explicitly. Um, in fact, there are a couple of characters that we're going to see that are very well-known characters in human history, and their story intersects here in the Bible. 
Um, and, and so this new governor comes from Rome. He's attempting to gain uh, favor with his new constituency. I don't know anyone that would do that in our culture today, but uh, he comes to this culture and he wants to gain favor with the constituency. And so he hears that these Jews hate this individual Paul. And so he says, well, you know, I'm thinking about putting you on trial. And so he, he invites some, some individuals down and they bring their charges against him. And he sort of listens to this. And while he's listening to them, um, he, he really he realizes like there isn't a lot of substance to this. And he says, why don't we go up to Jerusalem and let's try you up there. And, and in this moment, Paul, very famously, he appeals to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. And so he appeals to Caesar and he says, wait a second, you're not taking me to Jerusalem. As a Roman citizen, I appeal. I want to take my case to Rome. And, and, and this will result in him going to Rome. And that's a very incredible part of God's sovereignty in the history of the church. But first, something else happens. Rome not only has governors in this region, they also have a king, a guy named King Agrippa II. King Agrippa is a Jewish but Roman-appointed king over this region. And, and this, um, you can read about him also in history books. When he arrives, he comes for a visit. When he arrives to meet Festus, this new governor, Festus comes up to him and says, hey, you need to understand there's this individual that Felix left for me. He was in the jail when I got here, and there's sort of an issue going on, and, and, and here's what I did. And by the way, uh, I was going to take him up to Jerusalem, but he appealed to Caesar. And then they start talking about it. They start talking about the case, and, and in this moment, um, they, they agree. They say, well, we can't really send him to Caesar unless we have a clear reason for sending him. Like, are there any charges that have been brought against him? And, and he says, you know, in fact, Festus says, this is just some, like, religious, like, blabber. He's like, I don't even know what they're fighting over. Remember, Festus is just a Roman guy who's been appointed here. He's like, they're just like fighting over religious stuff. I don't even know what it's all about, right? Well, Agrippa, he hears this, and, and he says, well, I want to hear from Paul. And so when you get to chapter 26, it's an opportunity for Paul to explain his case before this guy, Agrippa. And we find out the underlying reasons. In fact, through this course of chapter 25 and chapter 26, we discover three underlying reasons that people reject or are resistant to the way of Jesus. And, and whether you're exploring faith for the very first time or whether, um, whether you're trying to walk out in your faith, I, I think these responses may reveal the chains that are potentially holding you back from experiencing everything that God has for you. I think what we see in these responses may be holding you back from knowing God the way that you can know God or maybe experiencing God the way that you can experience God. So we're going to walk through this scene and then we're going to talk about those things. So Acts chapter 26 verse 1 says this. It says, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, this is really important. Um, he identifies with Agrippa and says, first of all, finally, there's somebody here who's knowledgeable enough and has enough experience with Judaism that you're going to know what I'm actually talking about. And he kind of compliments him. He says, you're Jewish and, and you're educated and you're wise and you're going to understand me. It was a really great way to start your defense to this individual, right? Then he continues, verse four. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. Listen to what he says. 
because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. So, so, so you got to understand what he's doing. He's saying, listen, I, I've been a Pharisee. I've, 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 I've lived my life for this, but I, I'm on trial because I have hope in something that they should have hope in. They should be seeing what I'm seeing. And he's saying, I'm accused by the Jews for believing in the very thing that they should be believing in. And then he says this, and this is huge. Verse eight, verse eight of chapter 26 is, is remarkable. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? See, Paul's question, it's a very disrupting question and it puts tremendous pressure on the conversation. It puts tremendous pressure on everybody who's listening in the room. It's like this. He says, listen, I'm on trial because I believe God raised the dead. And as Jews, shouldn't we believe this is possible? I mean, if God is God, then can, can God not do this? See, Paul's question, it's putting pressure on everybody, right? In one way, he's putting the Jewish God on trial in this moment, right? How small is your God that you can't believe that my experience, you can't believe that what you're hearing about with Jesus, how small is your God that you think that's impossible? It's like he's, it's like he's saying this, of all the people in the world, you doubt this? Of all of these religious opportunities that are out there, you're the ones that are doubting whether or not God can do this. You doubt this God. But then for all of those that are in the room, those other observers that are a part of this, who aren't Jewish, who have other systems of thought, who have other systems of reason or religion, he's asking a different question. He's saying this, does your system reach beyond life? Does your system reach into death? Do you have a God? Do you have a system that overcomes those things? Does your God have that kind of power? He's putting tremendous pressure on everybody in the room. Do you believe that God is God? Because if you do, why would you have any issue with me? Then he continues. For the next few verses, I'll summarize this. He says, listen, I was just like everybody else and I persecuted Christians. And then he says, but I had this encounter. And he actually tells the story of this encounter that he has with the risen Jesus. And he says, listen, that experience, that encounter with a living God, the very thing, by the way, that made the way of Jesus so attractive during the first century, that encounter, it unlocked the mysteries of my past and all the mysteries of the scriptures. Paul says, listen, I had this moment with God. And then when I looked at my past, when I looked at the past of our people, I looked at the history of the world, when I understood the universe, all of a sudden, everything made sense. It all made sense of everything else. And so I began living out the implications of this. I began living my life saying, well, if this is true, and now I believe that it is, then there have to be implications of this. So in verse 19, he appeals to, to the king's Jewish sensibilities again. And he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and through all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. So his logic is this. Agrippa, don't we believe that God is God? And if God is God, can he not do what I'm saying he did? And by the way, if God did do what he did, and he did appear to me the way I'm saying he did, and I had some sort of experience in this way, wouldn't it be disobeying God if I lived my life apart from those experiences? 
wouldn't I be disobeying if I wouldn't have come back to my people and said, let me just tell you the experience that I've had with God. Let me tell you about the things that I now know to be true. Wouldn't I have been disobedient to the very things that have been prophesied by our people? So he's walking him through this logically, right? Then in verse 22, he continues, and he says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, right? He's connecting all of the dots that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. In other words, this is what our people have believed would happen for centuries. And it's not just for us. It's for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. And then there's this amazing moment. Festus, who's this Roman political transplant, who's new on the scene, doesn't know anything about Judaism, right? In verse 24, it says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind, right? He hears this whole explanation and Paul's appealing to Agrippa and his Jewish sensibilities. And he says, you've lost your mind. Like you, 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 you literally are making zero sense at all. You're crazy. And we're going to get back to that in just a few minutes. But then verse 25, Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And now Paul turns his attention squarely on Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know that you believe. He puts him on the spot, and Agrippa responds. And to me, this is truly one of the most heartbreaking responses in the New Testament. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) Now, the nuance of of the language is indicating that he's saying, you're about to convince me to be a Christian. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, if I gave you any more time here, I think you might have me believing what you're saying, right? In other words, if you keep this up, you're going to convert me. You're going to convince me. And so verse 29, Paul hears him say this, and he says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except these chains. And I love this because I think we don't simply hear the heart of Paul, but we hear the heart of any person who has ever truly experienced and encountered the grace of God. He says, apart from these chains, Apart from the trial that I'm in, apart from the injustice that I might be experiencing, I just want you to have what I have. I just want you to know what I know. I just want you to be set free the way I've been set free. And then this is how the scene ends. Verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they'd withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar. He would have been set free. Now, these words hang in the air for me because um, they were meant for Paul, but I think they actually better describe everyone else in the account. You could have been set free. Everybody hearing Paul, chapter 25, chapter 26, 
It's not Paul who's in prison. It's you who are in prison. It's not Paul who's in chains. It's you who are in chains. You're the ones in chains. You're the ones who could have been set free. Your story could have changed. You wouldn't have to go on like this. But you chose your own chains rather than the freedom that is found in Jesus. So the question that I find myself wrestling with, and I hope you are too, is why? Why would you do this? Why would you choose to to live a life in bondage, to live a life and see what's in front of you and say, no, I, I, I don't want any part with that. Why would you do this? Why, when presented with an opportunity to know God and experience God in a life-transforming way, would anyone, then or today, push that opportunity away? Well, how could you push the table and say, you know what, let's, let's go deliberate in the other room. Boy, this is an interesting thing. <laughs> Why would you do this? There are a lot of reasons. As I said earlier, this story gives us three very distinct ones. And before I offer them to you, let me also offer this. I believe this is for everybody. This isn't just for those of you who might be watching or might be in the room that, you know, you're still exploring faith and you're still asking questions about faith. Even if you have said yes to Jesus at some point in your past, I believe this is for you. Because I believe that Jesus has more for every one of us right now. I believe Jesus has more knowing and he has more experiencing for us. Amen? And if there's something that's going to get in the way of us knowing and experiencing God at a greater level, whether it's the first time that we know and experience God or the 50th time that we know or experience God, I believe it can be found in one of these three things that we're about to talk about. What is chaining you? What is holding you back from experiencing everything that Jesus has for you? Well, first, let's look at the Jews. Um, we see the Jews. They've been breathing down Paul's neck, and they're, they're bringing him to trial, right? And the question I, I keep asking myself, especially these later chapters in the book of Acts, the thing that keeps rolling around in my mind is, why are they so angry? Right? Why are they so angry? Last week, we saw that there were a bunch of individuals that vowed to not eat or drink until Paul was dead. We can assume that after he sat in prison for two years, that they either broke their vow or they died of starvation, Right? And I asked the question, well, why are they so angry? Why are they so mad? And by the way, this is always good to remember that anger is a secondary emotion, right? So why are they really angry? What's really going on? If we look closely at Paul's argument, we see it fairly well. The Jews in this time period had clearly defined who God would be, and they weren't willing to let God be God. And so beneath their anger, what's really beneath their anger, and you probably already know this, what's beneath their anger is fear, right? It's fear. It's fear of being wrong. It's fear of losing control. Fear that God might be somebody that they didn't expect. Fear that God might include people that he, they never expected him to include. You can almost hear them say, well, I can't believe in a God who would, and then fill in the blank which we do that today, right? They did it then, they were doing it in this way, and we do this today. We craft a God in our own imagination. And the reality is that when we do that, we are chained by our own constructs of who God can or can't be. what, What if the next move of God in your life is being limited by what you believe God is capable to do? What if the next move of God is being limited because you thought, well, God can't do this or God isn't going to do this or God doesn't move in that way? What if God is going to do something that's beyond your imagination? Can you imagine a God who would do things greater than your imagination? Yes. 
By the way, this explains their anger towards Paul. You know, he was a rising star in their midst. He supported their supposition. He fought for it. And by the way, they loved him. They loved him when he agreed with them. But their love, as is often the case with any group that is advocating for anything, their love was conditional. If you agree with us, we love you. But they became suspicious when he began to talk about God in ways that they were uncomfortable with. When they saw God moving in ways that they were uncomfortable with, they became suspicious of him. So they settled. The truth is that these Jews during this day, they settled for a counterfeit God rather than the real thing. And that's the first response. Some people, the chains that we wear is that we just decided this is who I want God to be and that's it. And we settle for a counterfeit. Second thing is this. The second response, and it's pretty clear to see, it's Festus. Um, Festus is pretty easy to translate to our culture today. Uh, he's a career man. He's climbing the ladder. Uh, his world is, is rooted in, in making it up the next run, right? That's, that's his life, right? He has economic and political aspirations, and those aspirations are rooted in what he is, where he has decided to make meaning, right? Festus is completely focused on the physical. The physical realm is all that he has vision for, which is why he tells Paul, I think your education has driven you crazy, right? You call people crazy. I mean, we use this uh, in, in certain ways in our culture today. Basically, we call people crazy when they see things that everybody else doesn't see, right? And so the reason that Festus is saying you're crazy is that Paul is talking about things he doesn't see. He's blind to these things. He, Paul is describing spiritual realities to a man who is completely rooted in physical ones. Not just rooted in them, he has made his life about them. His entire life, all of its meaning is rooted in the stuff of life, the physical, what he can see and observe with his six senses. So of course he hears Paul and is like, well, what are you even talking about? What are you even describing? You've lost your mind. You're talking about things that we can't even see. He is chained by his spiritual numbness. Some of us get chained down. Some of us, what, what's keeping us from experiencing the next move of God is that we are spiritually numb. We are so focused on physical realities and we've desensitized ourselves to the reality that there is a world around us that is unseen. That in a moment we could have the curtain pulled back and we would see spiritual realities all around us. That we would see things in the universe that, that our physical eyes don't see. And we become numb to those things. You know, over the years, I've had a number of people, I've, this has happened you know, several times, where somebody will come to me and they'll say, you know, hey, I need to talk to you. And a lot of times they want to talk to me because, you know, you're the church guy, you're the, you're the pastor guy, you're the guy that you actually are one of the few that maybe you know how to make sense of this stuff. And this has happened on numerous occasions where people have sat down with me, and I always know where the conversation's going to go when they start whispering, and they get really quiet, and they'll say, can we, you know, can, can we meet for coffee? Just something I got to talk to you about. And then we'll meet, and the conversation will start to move and they'll, they'll say, well, you'll, and this is so funny, if it's happened in coffee shops, they'll look around like, I hope nobody's hearing this. And then they'll start to say, I've been starting to become aware of things, like, like hearing God. Like there's things that are going on and, and, and they'll whisper and it's like they're really freaked out. And sometimes I just like to slap on the table at that moment, you know, and freak them out. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't actually do that. But, um, no, usually I just sort of smile and I say, okay, uh, this is great and it's normal and you're just having your eyes opened. You're waking up to spiritual realities. You're waking up to things that are there. 
dimensions that are here that we just don't see. By the way, all it takes is just a momentary glossary of look at, at, at physics to understand that there is so much going on in this universe that we don't understand or see. And if we understand science from that perspective, why do we not understand that there are spiritual realities that are running parallel in this moment? Our eyes are being opened. For Festus, he can't imagine a world where things can't be seen because he's found an identity in what is seen, what is physical, what is in front of him. And if your identity is found in only what you see, if your value, if your purpose doesn't go beyond what you can see or experience in any particular moment, then you don't need a God who goes beyond any of those things until the physical fails, until your body fails, until the achievement fades, until things begin to break down, the money goes away or the buzz wears off. But then where will, your, where will your life be? You don't need a God until that moment, but then what do you do? I think it's really interesting. When you read the, the history of, of this season in the Roman Empire, you'll discover that Festus died just a few months after this conversation with Paul. Within 12, 6 to 12 months of this moment, Festus was dead. And you can't help but wonder, how would he have responded to Paul in this moment had he known what awaited him a few months later? Would you have thought he was really that crazy? The third and final response is Agrippa. And, and this one for me is probably the most poignant for all of us. Uh, I just hear something sad in Agrippa when he says, in a short time, you might be convincing me to be a Christian um, you might convince me to be a Christian, but you know what? I'm in too deep. I'm in too deep. Agrippa knows. This is what breaks my heart about this story, is he knows what Paul is talking about. And there's some of you that, that are listening and you're watching this, and, 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 and you know, you know that there are certain things that are true, right? He knows that, that there's a truth here. He knows. He can feel it in his bones. But he is a man who has planted both of his feet solidly in two different worlds, He's built a life, trying to build a life around both of these things. For, for Festus, it's all that he knows. This physical, he's like, I, I don't get it. You seem crazy to me. But Agrippa's standing there, and he goes, no, there's a part of me. I understand what you're saying, but I've also got this over here. And he's trying to live in these two different places. He knows there's more. He just can't break free. Agrippa is chained to living in two worlds. Maybe I can live in both spaces. Maybe I can have a really robust spiritual life, and maybe I can have a really robust you know, life in the physical. Maybe I can do both of these things simultaneously. Maybe I can pursue them both with equal vigor. But let me just tell you that Jesus has words for that. He uses the word lukewarm. He uses the word double-minded. He uses the word divided heart. And by the way, th those are not meant to, to condemn. They're meant to show a pathway toward freedom. There's a pathway to freedom, but it isn't trying to... Live your best life in both worlds. King Agrippa and, and Bernice, they rise from the table and they move in, th in the direction that a person takes when they move away from redemption and life. They move away to the other room. And what's so ironic about this story is that the opposite direction which is in fact the direction toward freedom, is precisely toward Paul and his chains. The chains, that's the irony. What they think looks like bondage, what they think looks like 
It's a lack of success. What's this guy doing? He could have been set free. They don't realize it as they walk the other direction. They are walking away from redemption and life. The way of Jesus. See, see the gospel preached by Paul, it interrupts the journey toward this sort of self-sufficient, powerful man and it, and it turns those who would listen toward the crucified God who is Jesus, who speaks to us from the other side of death saying, I want you to be like me. I want you to live this life. I want you to lay it down. I want you to know that when you lay it down, you actually find life. That's the gospel preached by Paul. So I'm gonna invite the band up to close us right now. And, uh, and as they come up, I think there's just some things to wrestle with. These are the things that I'm wrestling with. And I just want to challenge all of us to wrestle with these same things. What chains are you wearing? What chains are you wearing? Are you wearing the chains of the Jews that say, no, I've decided who God is and what God's going to do, and I've decided that I'm going to look for a God who, who behaves and acts the, the way that I want him to act? And, and have, you, have you put on the chains that say, and his church is going to be this way, and, I, and I'm going to predict what everything's supposed to be like? Or, or are you free to let God be God? If he can raise Jesus from the dead, couldn't he do whatever he wants? And then secondly, do, do you wear the chains of Festus? Do you find yourself kind of giving lip service? Like, okay, yeah, I know there's a spiritual realm, but the reality is you're really just living in the physical. And you're sort of wondering, what else is there? Is there anything else? Are you wearing the chains of this physical realm, denying the existence of spiritual realities? Or even worse, and let me just share that this is the one that hits home for me, is that these chains that Agrippa has around his neck. Ironically, there's a story in Roman history that Agrippa's father had spent a short time in prison. And when he'd been released, one of his friends sent him a gold chain that was the equivalent weight to the chains that he wore when he was in prison. I sort of wondered, does, does Paul know this when he refers to his chains? Does he understand that for Agrippa, there are chains, but they're chains of gold, not the chains of submission to Jesus? Do we find ourselves chained in this place where we're, we're like, yeah, no, I want to be faithful. I want to, I want to be somebody who's a good Christian. I want to follow Jesus, but man, my career is sure enticing. And man, this world sure has a lot to offer. Man, I sure want to pursue pleasure. Like, are we, are we finding ourselves divided? Do we find ourselves not giving everything to Jesus because we just want to hold on to something else? That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that the chains that are on our lives, there's something in our hearts that when we see the grace of Jesus, when we understand what he's done, when we understand what's happening in this world, I think there's something in our hearts that knows if I fully move towards the unconditional love of Jesus and if I really experience his grace, then I can't help myself but give everything to him. And so we just sort of keep things at arm's length. Because I know if I really, really understood Jesus' love for me, if I really understood his grace, I couldn't help but be all in. I couldn't help but jump over the table and chain myself to Paul and say, I want to be like you. I want us to wrestle with this. I want you to ask the question, God, are you speaking this to me? Is this a word that I need to hear in this season right now of my life? And while you do that, 
we're going to worship together. So those of you in the room, would you stand with me and let's worship together.
You know, I don't, I don't know that I have very many uh, really original thoughts. You know, when the writer of Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun, sometimes I feel like that's me. It's like, I, I, and after 25 years of ministry, there's a lot of things I say and there's a lot of things I do. And sometimes I, I you know, it's like, I don't know where that one came from. Um, and maybe that's just a function of getting old. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but the last couple of weeks, there's this thing that I just keep rolling around in my head, and I don't know that I've ever really heard anybody say it, and it might be an original idea, I don't know. Um, but I, I've been writing it down, and then I said it to somebody, and, and at some point I thought, it's gonna be in this message today, and it just didn't work it in. And then just now while we were worshiping, I just felt like, oh, there it is. That, this is where we need to hear this thing. And it's this. The world wants to say that we're all good. The world wants to say we're all good, right? I, I, I watched a, a program last night on TV and somebody said in this documentary I was watching, they just said, well, you know, people are at their hearts, people are just, they're just genuinely good people. And, and the world says, don't tell me I'm bad, don't tell me I'm broken, right? That's kind of what our, our culture says right now. So, so the, the world wants to say you're all good, but religion wants to tell you that you're all bad, right? Religion says you're bad and God's angry and you probably did something to make him angry, right? That's what religion says. But the gospel says you're loved. The gospel says you're loved, right? The world says you're good, religion says you're bad, but the gospel of Jesus says you are loved. And that makes all the difference in the world, amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul stands and he just says what I'm gonna say to you and that is, whether long or short, my prayer is that all of you, apart from these chains, would have and know what I have. And so may you be men and women who know that you are loved and may the love of Jesus compel you and draw you to a place where you shed the chains and you experience and know God more than you've ever experienced or know him before. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Those of you online, thanks for joining us. We have amazing days ahead of us. I truly believe that. I truly believe that when we pull back the curtain and we see what God is doing in the spiritual realities, that God is moving right now in powerful ways. And I look forward to all of us participating in what he's doing. Amen. Amen. You guys have an amazing, amazing rest of your night. Have an amazing rest of your week. And we will see you guys really, really soon. Thanks for being here, everybody.